house lights dim, the audience leans forward in expectation. A pregnant silence fills the theater and washes out over the wings, through the flats and out into the street and the world beyond. There is a gasp. A great magenta light picks up a tiny figure on the stage, tattered and torn, bearing his fielder's mitt. He waves jovially at the audience, hoping thereby to gain just a modicum of their sympathy. And then he pirouettes slowly in the light, and once again, another great moment in American theater is about to begin. Though I'm just drifting along with a breeze. All right, let's play it all the way through, huh? <laughs> I've got a terrible, terrible confession to make before we get this uh, fiasco underway, and I'm doing this for, I suppose, for, uh, through the purposes and for the, to, to uh, in a way, to, to uh, be honest, I suppose you can say. And give you a chance to get the hell out of here before it gets too much trouble. And that is, I don't know, well, this is not a cute day. No, I'm, this is just not a cute day. I'm not cute today. Do you notice that, Bob? You notice that. Well, you're not looking so good either, you. Smart. Ask a crappy question. What do you do? You get it in the ear. All right, so it's not a cute day. You're just going to have to put up with me for bitter or for better. Well, all right, don't laugh now. All right, bring on something. Bring something to take their mind off of it. Come on. All together now. I knew the minute I got up this morning, it was not a cute day, and there was nothing I could do about it. It was downhill ever since. She's got eyes of blue. I never cared for eyes of blue, but she's got eyes of blue, and that's my weakness now. Da 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 da. She's got dimpled knees. I never cared for dimpled knees, but she's got a dimpled knees, and that's my weakness now. Oh me, oh me, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh me. Oh, I could be good, I should be good, but gee, oh, she's Bill and Coo. I never liked to Bill and Coo, but she likes to Bill and Coo, and that's my weakness now. She's got a yellow teeth. I never cared for yellow teeth, but she's got a yellow teeth, and that's my weakness now. She's got hairy knees. I never cared for hairy knees, but she's got hairy knees, and that's my weakness now. Oh, me, oh, me, oh, me, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, oh, I could be good, I should be good, but she, wow, da 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 
She's got hairy... Oh, that's enough. The rest of it, I can't even go into it. It's just so disgusting. There's so many lyrics to that that are just so sickening that I can't even begin to be... Hey, you know, it's been a long time... Hello, Tess. Hello. Hello. Yeah, there we go. It has been a long time since we here at this concerned radio station brought you another excerpt from another broadcast from the venerable British Broadcasting Corporation. And they keep wishing it off on me. So uh, would you please, as a public service, would you please bring on that tape for us? Bob, please. Rack! Good evening. Once again, the British Broadcasting Corporation brings you its salute to a great Englishman who once again proves that the sun shall never set on the British Empire. We may be down geographically, but our spirit will remain eternal. We shall fight them from the hedgerows. We'll fight them from the used car lots. We'll fight them with blood, sweat, and tears. And tonight, the British Broadcasting Corporation and its overseas service once again salutes the spirit of an outstanding Englishman. And tonight, tonight we salute Charles Newman, a British art through and through. Charles Newman, 58, sat in prison in London today, and he said this. Two years for breaking a lousy window. Two years in the pen for causing damage worth a lousy nine pounds ten shillings. Just wait till I get out. When he got out, Charles Newman went right back to the Bateman catering shop in suburban Shepherd's Bush and smashed the glass in that same window. My God, there's an Englishman. Charles Newman has been convicted six times for smashing that same window. And today, Mr. Newman really tried the patience of Judge Henry Elam. Newman was brought to court by Detective Constable Ronald Smith, who reported Charlie had 28 convictions, all of them for breaking windows. It was in 1962 that Charlie first smashed Bateman's window and was sentenced to two years at the London Sessions. Asked by the newsman why he kept smashing the same window, Charlie replied, I was embittered when I received two years for window smashing. When I was in prison, I heard about all the sentences passed on people for serious crime. And there I was, sentenced to two years for causing damage worth nine pounds ten shillings. And then when I came out of prison... And I walked past this place, I said to myself, that's the same window I got two years for. And I smashed it again. I'd do it again. Oh, my. And the judge sent him off to prison again for another two years. But, said the judge, I'm going to take a calculated risk with you. If you break this or any other window again, no court will ever show you any mercy. If you feel disposed to break a window... Come and see me. And with that, the judge remitted his sentence. 
And so tonight we salute Charlie Newman, somewhere out in the darkness, who is refraining to break windows. Once again, the British Broadcasting Corporation has brought you a salute to an outstanding Englishman who shows the stick to the fortitude, and the simple guts of an Englishman. Stay tuned for Lady Chatterley Hogworth Hogworth and her interesting program on philatelic doings, the world of stamps at your fingertips. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. Why do they put this stuff on my show, Bob? They could just put this on John Gambling's show. I get all this stuff. Next thing you know, they're going to start putting that idiot Chucky again on the show. Reports for the world of men's fashions and all that stuff. Trying out, Bob. Uh, which uh, reminds me, speaking of the world of the, the British, uh, before we do that, this is WOR. And we're the Big Apple here. We're in this fan. Hey, did you hear that police officer the other day? I'll tell you, I must say, once in a while, you hear one of these great lines on the news. I heard this tape of this police officer just after they flushed this guy out of this apartment. In fact, it was this morning. Just seems like three days ago. They, the guy they flushed out of that apartment, you know, that was holed up in there, and he uh, shooting in the whole scene. They finally dragged him out, and uh, this newsman was... Was, was interviewing this policeman. Of course, this is not a funny situation. But what the policeman said, uh, I think, deserves wider circulation. The newsman was talking to him, and I don't know what question he asked him, but the, the policeman, in the middle of his discussion, says, he says, you know, sure. He says, I don't know why they... He says, with all the tragedies that are happening, with all the tragedies and all the shooting and all the killing and all the violence everywhere, I just don't know how they can call this a fun city. <laughs> and then just as they were cutting him off, he says, and it's getting worse every day. <laughs> oh, yeah, somewhere the mayor's putting on his fun cap. I wonder whether they sing that before cabinet meetings. Just a question. New York is a fun city, a fun, fun, F U N city. With a cha 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 cha. Do you have a beer commercial in there? Hit it. That'll give him some fun. The bright, clear taste in beer. Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. That's Miller Highlight. The happy sound is about famous Miller Highlight beer that has soared in popularity because millions more recognize the traditional quality and heritage of an unequaled, unchanging, truly great beer. Wherever people are living better, you'll find Miller Highlight in handy take-home cans, on tap, or in the familiar crystal-clear bottles. Next time you want the very finest, ask for Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Somehow that cop touched on a very sore point. You know, I felt this for a long time. 
I really do, and I know it's not a popular way to feel, uh, but I felt this, that as things become worse in any given situation, it may be in a company, it may be even in a family, it may be uh, in a country, as things get more and more difficult and as uh, life uh, goes downhill in many ways, there is another side of us that pretends that things are getting better. It might be called the whistling in the dark syndrome. Have you ever noticed this at all in your life, Bob, at all? That, uh, that you'll, you'll find a guy who's in trouble, he's out of work, and it's obvious that he's getting worse and worse, and that it's not going to, and he begins to, to act more and more cheery and chipper, and he, he pretends more and more that things are really great. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea that at this point in time, when everybody you hear in New York City, I have not talked to a person in New York for a year. You know, I, I live right here in Manhattan, and I know hundreds of people who live in Manhattan. And the one thing they are agreed on, and that is that life in New York City is getting to be almost untenable. Have you heard that everywhere, Bob? You've heard people say that. Uh, I mean, it's a combination of a million things. Uh, traffic, which is obvious. Uh, everybody jammed to get dirt. The city, I think, is dirtier than it's ever been, ever. Uh, you walk up and down the streets and, boy, the cigar butts and the beer cans, and you go into the subway stations and the, the cars are dirty and the windows are dirty. And everywhere you look, there's some kind of construction going on, and more dust and crud is floating down. You walk down the street, you can you can feel the ground thunder from explosions when they're they're dynamiting down, and boom, and the windows rattling. More crud drifts down and gets in your eyes. You know, you can't. <laughs> That's the sound of a guy trying to hold a conversation with his friend at 56 at 56 and 6 Avenue. Hey, Charlie. <laughs> It's just impossible, see. Well, it, it, at this time in history that we announce the composition of and the universal singing of a song called New York is a Fun City. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, it, to me, it smacks of whistling in the dark. And all these little whoopee things that they, you know, that they do in the park, which gives the impression that it's a fun city, you know, like... Uh, Next week, we're all going to have a rope-skipping contest right next to the Waldman Auditorium on the skating rink down there. And all of you people bring your ropes down there. We'll skip rope. And that'll come after the kite-flying contest, and that will be just before the skateboard contest. And, oh, my God, we've got so many wonderful things lined up for you. We're going to have a hopscotch contest. And uh, we're going to have clothesline art. All of you people who want to write obscene things on clothesline sheets and stuff, you come out. We'll give you the paint. Well, that, that which is all fun, there's no doubt about that, you know, this stuff. But it gives you the, you know, it gives, it gives a universal impression that the city has become, you know, fun town, <laughs> fun city. And, uh, gee, I was at that fire. Let me tell you, you know, I haven't mentioned this on the air, but uh, just by a series of coincidences, I happened to be driving uh, west on 23rd Street just when the big fire that uh, that was the, the terrible fire that happened down on 23rd and Broadway was just getting underway. There was some smoke coming out of the front of the building there, and a few fire trucks had arrived, 
and it was just before the fantastic disaster. Well, I, I stopped the car, and I got out, because they, they had blocked all the traffic there, and people were beginning to gather, and I, I'm a natural gatherer. And I walked over, and I saw this whole thing begin to build until finally it was almost like an unbelievable nightmare. Uh, this, this, uh, the flames were leaping. I don't know whether you've ever heard any discussion, really, of what the fire was like. We all know about the disaster. But I have seen a lot of fires, and I have just, you know, living in big cities, you see them quite often. But I have never seen anything that was like that fire, Bob. That fire reminded me of movies that I have seen of uh, Britain during the Battle of the Blitz. Have you ever seen those movies with the flames, uh, a building totally engulfed in flames, with the, with the flames shooting out of the top of the building, maybe 40 or 50 feet high, giant red and, and angry hot flames? And you could hear that thing roaring from, as well, they, they wouldn't let the crowd any closer than maybe a block away or a block and a half away, and you could hear it roaring from that distance. You could just hear this, this fantastic flame, that roaring, that enormous thing. And, 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 and there were people on the sidewalk at the time that were walking around. Some, and, 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 you know, there was a sense that if, if something didn't happen quick, this whole, the whole block was going to go. You know, this could have been a real disaster. That's something I haven't read much about in the paper, that if it wasn't for the unbelievable heroism of those uh, firefighters, this could have been a catastrophe like this city hasn't known in years, if ever. And uh, I heard one guy, one guy was standing in the, in the uh, crowd there, and he says, you know, looking at this, this fantastic fire, which the wind was coming in just right, and it was just roaring like some kind of an enormous inferno, this whole corner of the block there. And you could see the windows outlined against the red flames. And you could see the, the paint peeling off the wall on the outside, this white brick. And you could, you could just see the, the boards just going up like they were, they, were, they were being atomized. It was a fantastic fire. And nevertheless, they had, uh, you could see these firemen going into this thing uh, to do something about it. It was unbelievable. And the people, you know, all the hippies, it was fascinating because there were millions of hippies in that crowd because that's in the kind of hippiesville, that whole area there, you know. And for one brief night... They were treated to reality, <laughs> I'll tell you. And they stood with their mouths hanging open, watching these poor guys tearing in and out of that place, trying to do something about keeping that fire under control. It was an unbelievable fire. And I, I remember at about midnight, I, uh, the thing was just, you, you couldn't, looking at this thing, you could not conceive, I myself personally couldn't see how, Anything could have been done about that fire without loss of life. And I turned to the person who was with me and I says, you know, I know somebody's going to die in that fire. And uh, we talked about the fireman. There was a, a guy, tall, skinny guy, uh, well, with a guitar case standing next to me. And we got talking about firemen. And, and you could see this, the, the super pumper was brought in. Did you ever see that thing? The super pumper came in and it had this big tower that leaned down. And these two guys were up on the top of this thing, practically in the middle of this fantastic inferno. And they were, they were, they were using this enormous hose that had these, this widespread angle of, of, uh, of hose radiation. They could change the, the radiation and everything on this hose. And, and you could just see the heat was so great that they were ducking out and back and out and from behind a big shield that they had on the top of this thing. 
And it kept moving back and forth. And the first thing that hit me was that wall is going to fall on those guys. But apparently it didn't seem to, you know, they, they didn't stop them, which is the thing. Did you read the, the accounts of, the, of, what, of it in the New York Times? Well, uh, you could hardly read the accounts of this thing without feeling, uh, uh, without, without, without feeling a sense of loss, a real sense of, of, uh, of uh, well, I suppose you can say a genuine sense of tragedy that took us suddenly out of showbiz, took us out of all that world, and these, these guys doing their job, you know, fighting against this fantastic force of nature, and then dying the way they did. But... Uh, and the reaction of the other firemen, I can only say, boy, uh, <laughs> in a city like New York, the credit that people who are involved in that kind of world, fighting against things which most of us run away from, and walking forward and hurling themselves into it, uh, this uh, very, not enough is said, not enough is ever talked about. Uh, in fact, a, a little account of that policeman. Did you hear one guy one, uh, the other uh, this morning when that man was up in the apartment uh, firing around and saying that he was going to kill everybody? Fire, uh, they, they, uh, they said that one policeman stood right under the window in direct line of fire of this guy. Had he wanted to just open the window and kill him, he could have done it. Totally unconcerned, stood down there and was directing the teams of people that were going in to try to to try to stop the disaster, which was a, what, fantastic, you know, whoo, wow. And, uh, you know, we can be cynical, and we are. People in big cities are today very cynical about that sort of thing. But when it comes down to the reality of running into a building with a hose, did you read about that one guy whose company was in there and he arrived late? Sullivan, I think his name was, something like that. Uh, his company, Company 18, of which uh, almost all the members were were, uh, were killed in the fire, uh, he arrived a couple of minutes late because he'd been out doing another detail, and he drove in his car, rushed over there, and when he was told his company was in the fire, you know, in the inferno, he grabbed his hose and rushed in after him. And he's the one that when the floor went down, he hung on to the hose. Do you remember that scene? Well... That incident, that little, that little moment of a guy rushing in after these people, after his friends, in the middle of a raging inferno, and it was obviously uh, getting unbelievably dangerous because all the rest of the firemen, the, you know, there had been the cry, get out, get out, and the people got out of the other area. He, instead, he went right in. Wow. You know, I thought to myself, you know, this is dedication. And uh, not enough can be said about it. And I didn't hear many people talking about it. I've been listening on the air, and I've been tuning around. And, uh, of course, everybody's been uh, talking about the terrible tragedy and the disaster. But, you know, all the firemen who were there, we were watching them. Uh, all the firemen were taking uh, just unbelievable risks, trying to, trying to stop this thing from spreading. And, you know, the guy standing next to me said one thing, a very interesting thing, because that's a very old part of town, you know, where this occurred. Uh, to people who are living outside of New York, maybe they don't quite know the exact geographical location of this, but the Flatiron Building is a couple of hundred yards from there, and most of the buildings in that area were buildings that were built around the turn of the century. This is really old New York. You know, that used to be the old theatrical section of New York. Did you know that, Bob? That there are a couple of old theaters and all that around. It was a very fashionable section many, many years ago. 
And uh, that was really the uptown section of New York. At the time, all those buildings were built. They were very uh, chic, very jazzy buildings at the time, back around 1890, 1880. You know, that building that, the, that was the one that was on fire, the one on the corner there, they said, uh, according to the building inspector, Chief Murdler, I believe his name is, uh, he said that that building was anywhere between 75 and possibly 100 years old. So these were very old buildings. And that whole area is consisted of old buildings. Now, a lot of people live in those old buildings, though. They live upstairs. They have lofts. They have all kinds of places down there. And one guy standing next to me said, you know, in the middle of this, this holocaust that was going on, he says, you know, this thing could develop into a Chicago fire. Has that ever occurred to anybody, you know, that a thing like that's why they went in there? In fact, I was sitting with a, with a cab driver the, uh, uh, this afternoon, right after it happened. I hope this isn't boring, you know, getting off on this subject, but it hasn't been talked much about, and yet it's all in our consciousness. You know, everywhere I went yesterday, people were looking, you know, very funny thing. I got in an elevator, and this, this elevator operator was kind of acting a little bit funny, and I says, what's the matter? And he says, oh, he says, I can't get those firemen out of my mind. Yeah, you know. Then that night, I went, I went uh, last night, I went to a restaurant, and, and uh, the, there's a waiter that's always, in fact, it was the Overseas Press Club. And there's a waiter all the time there, I know, and a very, very jovial type waiter. And uh, he came over, and he says, uh, how would you like a drink? And I says, oh, okay. He says, boy, he says, uh, everybody needs one. He says, I... He says, I, I just can't stop thinking about those firemen. And I know that everybody was, it was there. It was just, it was in the air yesterday, and people, people should talk about it once in a while, you know, when, when there is something like that in the air. But you know, uh, a cab driver uh, today, I was sitting in the cab, and uh, the cab driver was, uh, he was uh, yelling about, well, why didn't they come out? He says, why, what, what were they doing there? Why didn't they just let it burn, you know? And he was, of course, that is the first impression that most people have today, that everybody else is stupid. <laughs> that whenever a disaster occurs, it's because somebody was stupid. This is the impression. This is the great universal cop-out today people always have. Somebody was stupid. And he said, well, I don't, I don't know why them guys didn't come. He says, well, you know, there's a lot of stupidity. What are them guys doing? I says, fella, you know, I was at this fire. And if those men had pulled back and not done what they did, this town could be on fire today. <laughs> really. Now, you're going to say that's not possible. Don't kid yourself it's not possible. Especially in the kind of area that that was, that area of uh, New York City. Do you realize what could happen if a main gas line catches on fire in an area like that because of that now, I happen to have seen a fire like that one time when I was a kid, and maybe that's why I have a greater feeling for it. I lived in an industrial area when I was a child, and uh, it's still happening out there all the time in that area. And, and I remember the time that a gas feeder line uh, caught fire because of an explosion in one of the refineries, and within about 15 minutes, it looked like the whole world was going up in flames. And I don't know how many dozens of people died in that fire. But I do know one thing, that if it wasn't for the fact that about 15 firemen died in that fire, that uh, hundreds and hundreds of more could conceivably have died. These guys literally gave their lives to try to do something about something that was 
in a very real way, threatening the entire good of everyone. Now, that's a, that's a thing that very few of us do in our lives. Now, very few of us do anything for the general good of people, unless we get credit for it. <laughs> you know, unless somehow a, a playwright will claim that, you know, he's written this play to help mankind. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I can tell you this, he's realizing uh, fame, he's realizing uh, wealth, he's realizing achievement, he's realizing a lot of things for that. I've known guys who actually had the guts to look at me in the eye and say, well, he wrote this novel for the good of mankind. He wanted to straighten them out, you know. But that, you know, that's the easy kind of thing to do. It's very easy to picket, too, you know, when you think you're picketing for the good of mankind because people applaud pickets today. Uh, there's a sense of, of righteousness. There's a sense, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I mean, let's face it, you know, you're among a lot of other people and there's nobody going to come down and no walls are going to fall on you. Uh, and if you do, you'll wind up being a martyr anyway and people will applaud you for that. But a fireman is a nameless man. He really is. And by tomorrow afternoon, very few of us will remember the names of those 12 guys, if any of us even do today. So, they gave their lives to do the best they could for the common good. Now, I, now I, this may sound, in this day and age, what I'm saying may sound ridiculously romantic. And isn't that true? Well, it does, you know, because we don't talk like that anymore, you know. It may sound ridiculously romantic and ridiculously, uh, I suppose also the word could be, uh, well, uh, uh, idealistic. Because I know a lot of people, ah, them guys knew what they was getting into when they uh, signed up for that job. You know, wow. Wait a minute, fella. <laughs> That's exactly why I'm saying that about them. They knew what they were getting into when they signed up for the job. And don't think for a minute it's an easy job, which is another thing that people like to think. You know, ah, they sit around the firehouse all day long and play cards. Oh, do they? But remember, fella, they're sitting around the firehouse playing cards. You're out at Shea Stadium watching the Mets, which is the big difference. That the minute that place blows up, I saw one night in that very same area, I'll never forget it, and I'll tell another story about firemen. I saw a car get into an accident on the corner of 23rd, and this was about 4 o'clock in the morning. It was about 23rd, it was at 23rd and 6th Avenue, which is the racetrack. I mean, 6th Avenue is called the drag strip by all uh, cab drivers, and if you know that area, you know that uh, it's a wild driving scene, especially 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, one-way street, and they come barreling down. And I was a couple of blocks away, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I remember I was trying to start my motorcycle. It was a cold morning. It was last winter. And uh, I had the thing. I just got it started when all of a sudden I heard this pow, you know, just that, that instant, that, that, that kind of concussion that you know something really wild has happened. And I looked and I saw a car screaming across that intersection on fire from one end of the car to the other. It was in fantastic flames. And she roared across the street, spun around, and you could see the gasoline just roll out across that street. And she went up on the sidewalk and smashed into the subway entrance, and, and there it was, burning. Well, it seemed like within a, a second and a half, I tell you, it was, I was amazed. I, I started to run down towards it. A couple of other people were running that way. It seemed like almost instantly somebody somewhere had seen it, maybe out of a window, and had put in the alarm. It seemed like practically instantaneously you could hear the sound of a siren, and I, I assumed it was going to be the police instantly, you know. But no, around the corner came this emergency unit 
a red, big red emergency unit with the red lights flashing, and these guys jumped out of that thing, and like, uh, without any, any, uh, not even a split second of uh, reconsideration, they rushed into this car to get this guy out of this thing. The thing is blowing up and burning, and I'm telling you, it was blowing up and burning. And if you've ever been near a car that is about to explode, it had a full gas tank, you know the kind of fear you feel about this thing. Well, they didn't, uh, nothing. A, a group, three of them ran around to the back end where the gas tank was on fire and started to work with chemicals or whatever they could do. Three guys rushed into the car, which was now a flaming mass, a total flaming mass. And they dragged this guy out, and they laid him on the sidewalk, and of course he was stunned by the, by the crash, and he was overcome by smoke, and they put the oxygen on him. And uh, about five minutes later, these firemen got back in their truck... <laughs> And drove away. There it was. Now, I suppose they went back to play cards in the firehouse. But let me tell you, <laughs> let me t and they could have been, by the way, some of the guys that died in last night's, because they were from the same firehouse. It was in that same area. They had to have come from one of the same, uh, because it was at 23rd and 6th that this incident occurred, which was just a few blocks west of the big fire, which happened last night or the night before. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that happen, and they, they, you know, they know nothing, they laughed, they, they get in, they gave the guy oxygen, somebody, one of them put some burn powder, uh, burn uh, lotion on his arm, and they were waiting for a police doctor to arrive, who arrived in a police car, and a couple of policemen arrived, and the firemen packed up and left. Nobody took their names, <laughs> you know, nobody applauded them, and nobody said anything, and I thought to myself, boy, holy smokes. And, uh... We just don't talk about things like this often in uh, in uh, daily life. I'm curious to know how many firemen lose their lives every year fighting fires, uh, which could endanger the lives of all of us. I just I'm just interested. That'd be an, an interesting statistic to know, and what their average age was, and how many kids they left behind them. You know all of that. Uh, this is not uh, one of those easy civil service jobs, obviously. And when you see when you see what's happened, when you see you know when you're there at a fire of that kind and you see it you see it occurring, uh, and and the 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 way they went about it, that's that's the, the the next thing that that got me that intrigued me. There was absolutely never at, at any point any hesitation at all. <laughs> Not a bit of it. These guys were fighting that thing tooth and nail. It was, just, it was an amazing thing to watch them do it. I mean, running in and out of there, and they were... Uh, of course, the rest of the crowd is standing back with their mouths hanging open and their eyes sort of watching. And, they, and these guys, totally anonymous, because you can't tell one from the other, you know. They're in their, those big black slickers and those big black helmets, you know, in and out of the... And I just think, I just think we, once in a while, should give a little... Uh, what can you do, though, actually, in a big city like New York? But you know what I believe? I think that the reason this thing struck so many people and made so many people feel vaguely uneasy and terribly sad, and I know that it did to, to millions of people in New York City, was that they suddenly became subconsciously aware of their own selfishness and their own cynicism and their own knowledge that they themselves... Uh, wouldn't do much for anybody if they weren't somehow forced into it, you know? 
that given the chance to run into a burning building to try to save other people or to just to... You know why those guys were killed? Have you read the accounts of it? They were trying to do something about a wall in the rear of that building to keep it from spreading to the next building is what they were doing. Did you know that's why the actual technical reason why they were killed and what they were doing in there? The engine company 18 and a couple of others had gone into that building to wet down a wall, there was a firewall, and to wet down this wall and somehow try to prevent the spreading of the fire through that wall into the next building. That's why they were doing it. Uh, it was a technical job, and of course uh, the, the floor gave way under them and that was the end of them. But uh, they were there for a technical reason that was known to fire people. It wasn't just, they weren't just silly uh, running in there and, and uh, showboating. They were there with a specific job that had a specific purpose in mind. And uh, they were working at their job when they, when they died. And uh, all I can say is uh, we, uh, anything that the city of New York can do for those people, it should do. <laughs> and uh, anything that the city of New York can say for those people and do for them, of course, nothing can help at this point. But nevertheless, to let them know that we appreciate what they did, that it wasn't for nothing, that it wasn't just for uh, a silly fire. And there's no such thing as a silly fire, friends. Not when it's burning and somebody's got to do something about it. Oh, uh, speaking of doing something about it, we've got a couple of things. You have a little thing in there for me? Hit it, Bob. Okay, Maury. Here it is. Listen. New formula by Talus now comes in a tube, and it's now at a handsome low price. Now, hold it, hold it. Isn't that the same tune you wrote for Excedrin? Now, now, Maury, pay attention. New formula by Talus now comes in a tube, and it's now at a handsome low price. Oh, yeah, yeah. Da, 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 That's the Excedrin jingle. Okay, so it's the same tune for Excedrin and Vitalis. Aren't they both on sale now in your neighborhood in the stock-up sale of the year? When you're right, you're right. I have to admit, I'm, I'm enough of a slob to admit I like that commercial. <laughs> uh, speaking of commercials, let's see, we've got the Rover here tonight. Magnificent English car. And uh, there isn't too much I can tell you about it, except that, Dad, if you are planning to make an investment this year in an automobile, you owe it to yourself to investigate the Rover 2000 TC. There is a reason why uh, automobile critics all over the world have been commenting on this car as one of the great designs of the past 15 years. You know, this automobile was designed from the ground up. Uh, most cars evolve. Uh, let's take uh, the, the, the Chevrolet today. Are you aware that the Chevy today uses many parts that were used on Chevrolets uh, as, as long as 15 years ago? It's quite true of the Ford. In fact, it's true of almost all automobiles in the world. They evolve. Well, this car was designed from scratch as uh, from, by the way, by one of the oldest automobile companies in the world. So this is not a new, untried car. But for five years, they worked on the design of this car before the first one was built. It is truly a designed car for 1966 driving. It's a magnificent machine. And it will be, believe me, it will be in style and in technical style for a good 15 years from now. It's a great automobile. This is the Rover 2000 TC. Okay? If you want pictures of this, send me a card here. Uh, I'm Victor Jory. Just send me a card here, and we'll send you magnificent pictures of this car. You know, uh, oh, one more thing. I have a note here, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm, I'm highly flattered. 
uh, I am going to appear tomorrow, and if you if you live up around uh, Riverdale, I'm going to appear at the National Women's Committee of Brandeis University. It's the Riverdale chapter of the National Women's Committee of Brandeis, which is a very fine school, and the object of is a is an author. Uh, you know, people meet the author type luncheon, and uh, they have invited me up there to talk about my new book, which, by the way, uh, I'm delighted to report uh, is now everywhere. And if uh, if you've been looking for a copy of it, I think you won't have any trouble at your bookstore. And the name of it is In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. <laughs> Doesn't that say a lot? I mean, that says so much about what we believe anyway. That's why I picked that title, incidentally. It's not just a whimsical choice. And uh, I'm, I want to thank uh, uh, several people, particularly the writer from uh, Dolbier, uh, who w- came out with the first New York Review, which uh, was a great review on the book in the Trib, and I want to thank him tremendously. I don't know him. Uh, the man from the AP, uh, Rich, I believe his name is, also gave us a great review. The other reviews are will be out, I suppose, in the next uh, two or three weeks. But, uh, you know, it's uh, great to get a little applause. But nevertheless, we will be at this, uh, it's, a good, it's going to be at the Riverdale Temple at 4545 Independence Avenue at 246th Street. And that will be at 12 noon. And the public is invited, incidentally. And all you have to do is pay for your lunch. It's uh, $2 and a half, I understand. They have a great lunch in the whole scene. It is a lunch, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, if any of you are up in Riverdale and you'd like to attend this soiree, I would be more than delighted. And by the way, bring your books along. I'll write the last chapter in it for you, the one that I didn't have the space to put in, and that's the one that really gets down to the nitty-gritty. Uh, <laughs> and it's, uh, again, I repeat, it's the Riverdale chapter of the National Women's Committee of Brandeis. It's 12 noon tomorrow. It's at the Riverdale Temple, 4545 Independence Avenue at 246th Street, and the public is cordially invited. And... Uh, I enjoy this, you know. I really, I really do. I, I guess, I guess, basically, I'm a cornball. I have to admit it. Uh, I, I, uh, I enjoy uh, uh, speaking to people, and you know, all these people. I, I always feel sorry for guys who say, "Oh boy, oh boy, I sure hate the audience." You know, I, I wonder how many of you know how many comics, how many performers, and how many MCs of popular programs actually hate the audience that they perform for. I just wonder how many people know that. And uh, whenever I'm, when I, again, this may be corny, and it may be, uh, it may be uh, a little bit. Uh, hey, hey, Bob, it may be just a. Do I hear it? Yeah, the, it may be just a little bit idealistic. But I, I wonder why a guy is in show business or that area of life if he doesn't like the audience. Just never occurred to me, you know. And I enjoy it, but. Uh, on a far more serious note, I just had to get it off my chest tonight about those uh, those poor firemen and their families. Uh, and I think once in a while, in the middle of New York City's uh, inhuman world, the world of the computers, the world of the cocktail parties, the in crowd and the out crowd, I think just once in a while, something comes along like this that reminds us all of our basic humanity. You know, we're all in it together. And uh, once in a while we're reminded, and sometimes we don't like to be reminded of that. That can be a very uncomfortable thing to suddenly discover. And uh, I just had to say it about those firemen. 
And if any of their families are listening, and if anybody who knows any of their families are listening, tell them there's at least one guy. In fact, I know there's at least 11 million people who feel the way I feel, but don't have the means to say it. Just don't have the way to get it out.